you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll study verses 6 through 10. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Many of you will be familiar with the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy. You'll know that these are letters of the Apostle Paul written to a young minister, Timothy, uh, pastor of the church in Ephesus. And some of you may have the simple question, isn't this a letter for pastors? And I would say to you that pastors are another way of saying elders. This is relevant to Timothy. This is relevant to ruling elders leaders in our church. And so as you turn there to chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, there is a description by the Apostle Paul and encouragement, uh, a call on Timothy to be a good servant, and he explains what that is uh, there within those verses. So let's read God's word, and we'll pray, and then we'll study it together. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The word of the Lord our God, may he help us to understand it, to receive it in submission to Christ Jesus the King, and to be a people formed after the image of our Redeemer. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we could study your word today, that you would instruct us as a father instructs children. Lord, we pray that you would raise us up in godliness, that, Lord, we would hear this encouragement, this call of the Apostle Paul to the younger minister, Timothy, and that, Lord, we would know that these are not simply words for those who are officers, but encouragements to all Christians. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us as a church with unity. Oh, Lord, may we be a people that would cling to Christ, that we would love him, that we would have faith in all of the truth that he has given to us in the scriptures. And that, Lord, you would restore and refresh us in this time of study and worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every true Christian should desire to be a good servant. It's a pretty simple thing. One of the parts of a general testimony of faith is that you are following after Jesus Christ. The most basic example or expression of what it is to be a Christian is subsumed in this one word, a disciple. A person that 
follows a person that serves the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say this, that if that is a goal or a desire, or that it even should be of every true Christian, that that is certainly true of every church officer, and certainly so of elders in the church. And as the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, this young minister, he's writing to a man that lives in a very secular world. He lives in Ephesus. It's a crossroads of nations. It's there along the sea. It has its own port. Not only that, it has its own entertainment. If you know anything about Ephesus, they have this horse track they call the Circus of Ephesus. It's an ancient place where people would be entertained. But worse than that sort of thing, if that even is a bad thing at all, there was in the city temples to pagan gods and one specifically famous for temple prostitution and the entire town was bound up on the economy of this pagan worship and sexual immorality and that is the city where Timothy is laboring with members of a church that face temptation that, ta that uh, face scandal uh, that face uh, ostracization and hatred from their neighbors. It's hard. It's a hard place to labor. It's hard ministry. And it's ministry in a society that, well, though it's ancient, isn't terribly distant to the world in which we live today. And the Apostle Paul, as he's encouraging Timothy to be a good servant, he then points him to three things. In verse 6, a good task. A good task. Verses 7 through 9, good imperatives. Good imperatives. And then in verse 10, a good motive. A good motive. And so in verse 6, we come and we enter into this situation where the Apostle Paul is encouraging a younger man, a man. That's a very common thing, at least it ought to be a common thing, that young men have older mentors. It's healthy. And let me just say this, young men, if you don't have older mentors, go and find a godly man and make him your mentor. Tell him, I want to be mentored by you. That's what you ought to be looking for. And older men that love the Lord, that love the Word of God, you ought to be seeking out younger men to mentor. But as he goes and he speaks to this man, it's... It's not just in any sense. Again, it's a minister encouraging a minister. It's an elder teaching an elder. And I think it's often very easy for us to misunderstand the work of officers and specifically the work of elders in the church, whether it's congregation members or whether it is the officer themselves. And so this morning, as we consider the good task, I want to point to a few different misunderstandings and offer biblical correction to them. Some people in different denominations with the diversity that there is within the church have different views about elders. There are certain churches that don't have elders at all. In fact, they think just the pastor, there's only one elder and that's it. And then there are deacons. That's the sort of church I grew up in, generally speaking. That is congregational or Baptist church polity, although there are some brothers in Baptist churches with elders. 
But then you have others that have consistory members and different things and all sorts of different things called in different ways and a different idea of church government. And I'll say this, and it's because of the diversity of almost every church I've ever been in, that can be confusing. There's a lot of diversity and it can be confusing. The second thing is, is that there is more or less faithfulness, even within churches, that we would say have a biblical or Presbyterian form of church government. More or less faithfulness, where an elder more or less does or does not keep the charge that he's been given. Where he has more or less of a good understanding of what the calling he actually has is in its particularity. And so sometimes churches will think a ruling elder is one thing because their session behaves in one way, but their session may well need to be encouraged, rebuked, trained again, and taught to then hold their office with integrity and biblical faithfulness. But then there's a third thing, and that is within the man himself, he may be confused about his own sense of calling or about the task that he's been called to very specifically. And I'll tell you, a few of these different confusions that I think I see in the church today is that sometimes elders believe that they are intended to be comfortable administrators. Comfortable administrators. They have an eye on the running of the church. They go once a month, they have a meeting, it's a business meeting. They're businessmen, sometimes successful, and they make decisions and they vote and they sort of silently make directive decisions as if they are a committee behind a veil, a comfortable administrator. That is a misunderstanding of what an elder is. I think a second misunderstanding would be that an elder may think he's a church politician, church politician. After all, he is elected, right? And so, in some churches, you almost see campaigning for election to office. Would you nominate me? Maybe a man might say. Or other people. Hey, that man, this man, this other person. That's who he ought to be. But more than just the electing part of it, they think that their representative in that, their role is primarily to take the will of the people and then to execute it on the line of what the congregation wants. Why even have officers if you just want congregationalism in a more confused way? Would be the question I would have to a church. A church politician where his head, his leading, all the things he does are in fear of his constituents or those who voted for him, the people in the pew, the congregation, as if all he's there to do is to carry out the wishes of 200 to 300 or 400 other people. And then there's the third, I would say, most disturbing sort of misunderstanding. And that is when an elder thinks he is an empowered tyrant. He's got the power. It's his role. He had hands laid on him. It's what he says and only what he says and nothing else. 
and he's not responsible to anybody but the people in that session room. And even then, it's almost like there are six different little tyrants. And there's competition on the session. And the elders disagree. And it's a disunified and often disjointed church going in five to ten different directions. That's not what an elder is called to be in any of those circumstances. The Apostle Paul calls Timothy to be a good servant. A good servant. But of whom? Because if you look at verse 6, he tells you specifically whose servant the elder is. He's a good servant of Jesus Christ. That's who he belongs to. He's not just anybody's servant. He's not a civil servant. He's not a congregational servant. He's Jesus' servant as if he's a bond servant. As the Apostle Paul described himself, a slave in chains to the king. He's Christ's man. And nobody else's. He fears the Lord who has flaming eyes and a tongue that's like a double-edged sword. That's who he fears. He fears the one that can throw both body and soul into hell and he fears nobody else. He's Christ's man. That doesn't mean he's not accountable. But it means his head is the Lord and his direction is taken from the scriptures where God has spoken. He's a good servant. But then as the Apostle Paul is describing this, uh, before he even introduces the title of a good servant, he tells us about the good task of the good servant. He says in verse 6, If you put these things before the brothers... You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. If you go back and you study verses uh, 14 through the end of chapter 3, and then you study verses 1 through verse 5 of of, uh, 1 Timothy, you get a sense that this is a church in a hard city. This is a church that struggles for godliness. This is a church where there's disunity outside of the local congregation. And it's a difficult situation. Remember, this is the church in Ephesus. And so, whenever you come to verse 6 and he says, if you put these things before the brothers, what is he talking about? Putting things before them. I think in the most basic sense, it's teaching. It's preaching. It's correction. It's reproof and it's rebuke. It's the elder being a good servant, holding the good task of teaching sound Doctrine, And he doesn't do it from his own mind or from his own heart or from the scriptures and bathed in prayer. And you may say, why do you think that, Pastor? But it's because of what Paul says about the work of the elder everywhere else. He says, put it before them. And there's this here. That the good task of the good servant, the elder, is simply to take words of Scripture and the truth of Christ and hold it out to God's people. And if necessary, to press with the Word of God and with love and compassion and courage, even in the season of rebuke, so that brothers and sisters in Christ might not be carried away by silly myths and false teachings. Again, he's Christ's man, and he has a good task, and his task is married 
to the word of God as he serves his Savior as an elder and shepherd of the flock of God. And you go on and in verses 7 through 9 you have good imperatives that the Apostle Paul gives. And whenever I use the word imperatives, I, I would say that I would guess most native English speakers may have a general idea and maybe non-native uh, speakers may wonder what are we talking about here. Specifically, I'm talking about a part of speech, a, a verbal tense in the original text, an imperative. An imperative is an issue of highest importance. It is something that the text would say must be done or must never be done or must never be neglected. The most important things where the scriptures leap off the page and grab the heart and bind the conscience. And people don't often like the language of binding of consciences. We say that in political factoring, uh, factoring, you shouldn't have your conscience bound by another man or by the opinions of another person. Or even in personal views, don't bind my conscience. I have liberty of conscience, but where does the liberty of conscience actually stop? Well, it stops whenever the mouth of your creator is opened and he tells you what to do in the Bible. In the Bible. And so the Apostle Paul, in using imperatives, he is pressing the heart of Timothy. And he is saying, these are things of highest importance. These are things you must do, you must not do, things you must not do neglect and you think to yourself well that's fine but I don't really like anybody telling me to do anything but friend you have imperatives you do whether you recognize it or not you have things that you pay service to that you hold in real importance things you would not miss under any circumstance things that you are committed to it may be a thing that you end up paying money for a lot of money a lot of money for whether it's a family thing it's an imperative i certainly have an imperative to the raising of my children and the love and the admonition of the word of god so that they know that not only mommy and daddy love them but that the lord jesus christ loves them and calls them to faith in him i have an imperative to keep the church well because of my vows but you have imperatives, you have lots of them, whether it's to work, whether it's to family, you have lots of them. And here the Apostle Paul pushes two to the elder, two. And they're both in verse 7 and they're expressed through verses 8 and 9. The first, verse 7, an imperative of what he must not do. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Again, the apostle's not speaking in a basic suggestion, but he's commanding him. Don't wander off into silly things. Don't find a minority thing and then go for it and only be known for one issue. One thing, one weird distinctive. Don't go into these silly things. Guard your heart. That's the positive there. Guard your doctrine if you want to make it into a positive command. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. 
keep watch over your own soul. Submit all things to Scripture. Have nothing to do with false teaching. And then to echo what Paul has already said regarding the work of the elder, how can he teach the truth if he doesn't know the truth? How can he put it before God's people if he's entertained in his own heart and in his own mind by silly myths? They may be theological. They may be sound. But the greater question is, are they biblical? Are they biblical? And so that's what he calls the elder to. The second imperative in verse 7 also is a positive imperative. He says, train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. Again, not a basic suggestion, but a command. As if he grabs Timothy's heart and says, do this. Do this. You do this, Timothy. Train yourself in Godliness, care for your own soul. And this sounds strange probably to most church members because you have a relationship to ministers that train you in godliness, that preach the word to you and that uh, show you the way that you ought to go spiritually, that read the Bible to you and with you, that encourage you all the time. But for this elder, he's saying train yourself. Be self-motivated. Take up the word of God and read it for yourself. Study it for yourself. Study these things. As if you're an athlete training your soul. It's good to train your body. That's of some value. But there is every benefit in the training of your soul. Because it's what? Beneficial in this life and in the life to come. Train your soul. That's what he says. elder or a minister of God in the church has to be constant in the care for his own soul. He has to be a godly man striving after it and struggling after it. Seeking growth in himself. Searching out his own sin. Putting it to death where it's being cut off so that the weight of sin is trimmed from his spiritual frame. He's working out the scriptures and his faith in his daily life in prayer and in study and he's taking the gifts that the Lord has given him and he is practicing them as an athlete might whether it's running or lifting whatever it is training of the soul so that our faith is exercised Meaning for godliness, what is it? That the faith that you have gets stronger, that your love for Christ burns hotter and is even more prolifically powerful. Train yourself in godliness. That's what he says to the elder. Train yourself in godliness. My brothers in the room, and I say this to myself, we have not arrived if we're to be shepherds, we have to be men that love the Lord Jesus Christ with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we have to be men that submit ourselves every single day with discipline to this. 
Open the word of God. Test everything. Everything we hear and everything in us and everything we will say by the scriptures. So that we're made sharper and more equipped to serve Jesus. We haven't arrived. We're not done. It doesn't matter if you get a degree or ten degrees. It doesn't matter if you write dissertations that stack all the way to the moon. We ought to be men that are trained in godliness so that we look like him, move like him, and exhibit his power in the midst of the church. Two things, simple things, very, very difficult tasks. But do you notice what the Apostle Paul does not say to him? He doesn't say go and take administrative roles. Just get more involved. Now that you're an elder, guess what? You've got to do more. Get more done. Do more work. Do more things. Lead more groups. Those are not bad things. But those are not what he calls them to. He doesn't say read more books. Read more books in theology. Although that's good. It may be a part of the training. He doesn't say then go and find a mentor to teach you how to be a leader. Rather, he says, train yourself. Train yourself. And you're going to do it how? You're going to do it with the Word of God. It's very basic. It's simple. Though who could ever claim it to be easy? And why is he going after these imperatives? Well, it is because the imperatives of persons... Your imperatives form your character. Okay? The most important things in your life are going to direct you in what you do and what you say and who you are. That's pretty simple. You meet a professional athlete, guess what sort of conversation you're going to have with them? Probably one about athletics and the sport that they train within. The imperatives of a person form their character. And so these two things, true doctrine and a godly life, those two things, why are those so important to the elder, to the minister of Christ? It's because they will produce the holy leader that the church needs. Because if you're going to have true doctrine, you're going to get it from Jesus Christ, and if you're going to get anything from Him, you're going to need to be near to Him in His Word and hear His Word in your ear and receive it in your heart and be transformed under its teaching. And do you know if you have true doctrine about Christ, you're going to serve Him with a dedicated heart and you're going to serve Him without holding back. And with everything that you have, you're going to be His. And that's the sort of leader that a church needs. Moreover, if the truth of God's Word is in you, it is going to crucify your sin. It's going to make you hate the things that you do in rebellion against the Lord. And scarcely can anything be imagined that a church needs a godly minister. Imperatives form who you are. And there are good imperatives pressed to the one who would serve in the office of elder. Lastly, in verse 10, we have a good motive. We have a good motive. A couple weeks ago, we studied the reality of uh, the significant work and the requirements of what an elder must have and 
He even talked about the difficulty of the task uh, that the elder has, specifically in rebuking or reproving. There's nothing simple or easy about that. That's hard. It takes courage. It often costs a whole lot in relationship and in time and emotional rigor. It's not easy. And I think if you go and you speak to your elders, you'll find that out. Ask them, is it easy to be an elder? I'm pretty sure the answer is going to be, no, it's not, but it's blessed. But it is blessed. It's not an easy task. And even this morning as we've studied the passage of Scripture, you think, wow, those are really high. That's, that's some significant uh, commitment. And you may ask yourself, how is it that anybody can do this? Can anybody do this kind of thing? The calling's so high, it's through the ceiling, it's above the clouds. I mean, how is it possible that the guy standing in the pulpit right now preaching at the elders on our session, how is it possible uh, that they can do those things? Care for their own soul, much less the soul of other people. Getting into the depths of other people's sin and dealing with their own sin in the depths of the pain of God's people as they suffer. As they struggle, as they weep and they mourn. It's an unfortunate fact that more often is the minister of God, the elder in Christ's church, invited to the table of mourning than the table of celebration. And some people will ask the question, how can anyone do this? And they'll answer it in this way. Well, you just gotta love people. And that's not wrong. You do have to love people to be a shepherd of God's people. You have to love the church. You have to love you have to love the congregation that you're part of if you're going to serve it as a leader. But I want to tell you that love for people, even God's people, and love even for your own church is wildly insufficient for the work of an officer. And he said, what do you want? telling you this. It can't be the motive. If you're relying on love for sinners in the pews, you are going to find out that sinners will prove to you that eventually they're unloving to you and they're unlovely generally. And if you press all of it, all the ministry I do, oh, it's because I love people. I love people so much. You will be put into a situation where somebody fashions themselves as an enemy and they accuse you as a servant of Christ. And it will be entirely difficult to love them in a tender capacity, even though that is what we're called to as elders. Rather, there is a different love and love focused on another person that will help us to do the ministry that Paul calls a toil and a task that we strive after. He says this in verse 10. It is because we have our hope set on the living God who is Savior of all people, especially those who believe. How can anyone do this task? Hope set on Christ. Jesus capturing the heart and the affections of the elder. That's the only way. That's the only way you're going to be able to be faithful in the labor of ministry is that your heart is held in the hands of Jesus Christ. 
and you love him because here's the wonderful fact of Christ. He is never unlovely, ever. He always deserves your love. He is always beautiful and always perfect and always gracious. And he always blesses you, even in the rebukes. They are gentle and refreshing. Love for Christ and hope in him and his coming. That's the only way you can be an elder in this church or in any church. If you're going to serve a body of covenanted sinners of whom I am one. Hope set on Jesus like eyes fixed on the horizon looking and longing for his coming, where the shepherd knows, I'm here just a moment, I'm a temporary servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm pressing to his coming. My king is coming, and we're all going to bow as his servants. And we're all going to sit in peace with him. And we're all going to be blessed under his ministry that is everlasting. So with that good motive, hope set on Christ, the elder can work to seek the approval of Christ and not the approval of men. He can labor for Christ's glory and not for the praise of a congregation or a society. He can serve because he loves Jesus and desires the Lord to know his loving heart for him. And he can serve even in hard circumstances that feel as if they may break the elders' resolve to serve because they are anticipating his coming, which is sure. And so church, you've heard me teach on the elder. But again, I want to say what I said at the very outset of this sermon. If this is what elders ought to do, this is certainly what every Christian is called to. Nothing I said here was in any way, shape, or form unique to the affections of an officer. But this is common with Christians. This ought to be what every person under the saving grace of the Lord does and strives for. And so I don't only call the elders and the deacons among us, but rather every single child of God to commit our hearts to this, to labor for it, and to keep our eyes and our hope set on Christ Jesus our Lord, who is coming. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the ministry you conduct in your church. That, Lord, you hold the hearts of men in your hands. Your word is what can be heard by the ears of dead men. Your power alone is what gives new life. And your Holy Spirit alone is the companion and the deposit guaranteeing the salvation of your people. Father in heaven, as we continue in this hour of worship, this service of ordination, we pray that you would bless our church 
that you would bless our deacons, that you would bless our elders, O Lord, that you would strengthen and establish our elder candidate. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name.